You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org. Maybe seated. Well, good afternoon, every, everyone. Um, thanks for coming to Redemption Hill Church. Thanks for worshiping once again. A few things before I formally begin. I want to let you know about a book um, I'm going to recommend to you. I don't recommend a lot of books. Perhaps I should recommend more. Uh, this one's called Delighting in the Trinity, an Introduction to the Christian Faith. Again, the title, Delighting in the Trinity uh, by Michael Reeves. I'll be actually quoting Michael Reeves just a few times today, but this will become more relevant and you'll understand why I'm recommending this book as I preach. But it, it, the premise begins with, who is God? He is love. What does that mean? And then how do we respond to our loving God? I, I was, I read this I think twice now, probably going to read a third, fourth time. So I just want to commend it to you. Um, Delighting in the Trinity by Michael Reeves. Also one, one note to kids as I begin. Kids, I'm going to be talking about love. Um, I'm sure your parents have said to you, I love you. <laughs> I know I've said that to my kids multiple times, almost every day. What I'm going to preach upon this afternoon is a love vastly greater than what your parents have to offer. How does that sound? So pay attention. My my encouragement to you is to pay attention about a love that is greater than your mom and dad have for you, which is pretty astonishing. So as as, uh, Aaron noted, we're in the book of Ephesians, and our sermon series is entitled uh, United in Christ One of the primary focuses of the book of Ephesians is a Christian's union with God and a Christian's union with one another through Christ. So our unity as brothers and sisters. So that's kind of the big sermon series for the book of Ephesians, right? Uh, That's chapter 1 to chapter 6. Now within this sermon series, as I noted last week, there's another sermon series kind of in the first half of Ephesians 1. All these glorious spiritual blessings. And it's just one spiritual blessing just kind of laid out after another. And then within this mini-series, we have yet another mini-mini-series between verses 3 to 6. And so I'm spending three sermons on these verses alone because I really want us to grasp what's going on and what is going on when God chooses a person for adoption. There's a lot here. We're going to be talking about massive theological truths connected to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ that have direct impact on how you live. And today I'll focus on what it means for God to choose and adopt in love. In love. Saying all about love this morning, and rightfully so. Now we're going to look at God's word and really try to understand what does that mean for God to elect to choose you and to adopt you out of love and in love. So I'm going to pray briefly one more time for God's help, help from the Holy Spirit. And let's just open up God's word. Heavenly Father, indeed your love is vast and wide and we are here this morning to want to know more about who you are and what that means for us and, how, and, and what is the appropriate response. So by the power of 
the Spirit. I trust you are at work as your word is opened and unleashed. Help us, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. I am not sure of a topic spoken about more than the topic of love. I put the word love into Amazon.com just to see what would show up. And there were about 200,000 items populated. Now, I didn't kind of go through and see what all these items were. Just wanted to know how much. I'm, I'm sure if you put in love into the Google search, we're getting into the millions. There's a lot of opinions, a lot of thoughts, a lot of perceptions about this word love. Since the creation of the world, humanity has been trying to define and understand love. Where does it come from? Is it physical? Is it emotional? Is it a mentality, a commitment, or is it all of the above? Is love something altogether different from the categories we typically use? Like every day, I tell my wife and kids, I, I love you. I love you. My wife will randomly send me text messages saying that she loves me. I also love my dog, Winston. I talk a lot about my dog, Winston. Just when I wrote that, I realized I use him a lot. But I love my dog, Winston. He's the best. And yet, I don't love my dog, Winston, the same way I love my wife and kids. And to be honest, the love I have for Sharice is different from the love I have for my children. When Sharice and I were married, we declared a covenantal love for one another. Like no such declarations were made when Chloe and Izzy entered the world. Like, I got a covenant declaration for you, right? <laughs> None of that happened. But that happened between my wife and I. Yet the difference is... And my love for Sharice and my children can't be measured. Like, I don't love Sharice a 10 out of a 10, and then my kids like an 8 out of 10. That's absurd. So what is love? Were John Lennon, Paul McCartney, and the rest of the Beatles correct when they said in their hit song from the 1960s, all you need is love? Like they used the word 76 times in that one song that lasted 3 minutes and 15 seconds. <laughs> so are they correct? All you need is love. I suppose the answer to the question begins with defining what they mean, what you mean, or what I mean by the word love. Indeed, Hollywood and popular culture speak a lot about love. For example, entire book and movie genres build around the love between two people and then the conflict that is created which keep these two lovers apart, right? We've all seen those kind of movies. You got, you got this dude who's like gonna, he's gonna climb Mount Everest. He's gonna swim the ocean to get to the destination where he can tell this one woman these three words, I love you. <laughs> We watch and read how romantic love overcomes the conflict or distance between two lovers. I mean, we, one more example. We have an entire day dedicated to love, Valentine's Day. I think humanity has been continuously pursuing and trying to understand love, even with the proliferation of the Internet. We're still trying to understand what is love 
Everyone is looking around for love and to be loved, but oftentimes people are looking in the wrong place for love. Looking in the wrong place. One of my concerns with Christians and Christianity in general when talking about love is that culture has polluted the mind to some degree, generally speaking. Culture has created a radical and unrealistic expectations of love. The culture has, in my opinion, inoculated the Christian mind to define love to be something that it is not. I I see this all the time in premarital counseling, all the time. I'll begin counseling a young couple who is love-struck, which is great. I love seeing a couple that is love-struck. Oh, I love you. And he's like, are you guys even paying attention to me? You're just looking at each other's eyes. Like, I, that's good. I like to see that. But as we move our way through biblical counseling, it becomes clear to me and hopefully to them that the Bible's definition of love is radically different than the definition that they've had and they've been taught since the day they were born. Not only do I help them deconstruct what they believe about love, but then I need to help them construct a biblical understanding or perception of love. As Christians, we want to look in all the right places when trying to understand love. Namely, we need to be looking in God's word. That's where we go. So let's begin to understand biblical love by looking at our passage. Here are verses 4 and a part of verse 5. You're becoming familiar with these words. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. There's that word, in love. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. Now, I said last week, there's debate about what those two words, in love, qualify Scholars go nuts on this one. Like, does in love qualify verse 4? Does it qualify what's being said in verse 5? The New American Standard Bible connects in love, in engave, with verse 5, while other translations, like the English Standard Version, which I read, um, it qualifies verse 4. Now, these debates are, are, I think, helpful, and I'll give you my position on the debate here in a moment, but no matter what in love qualifies, it's biblical to say God chose out of love, verse 4. God predestined out of love, verse 5, which is a very similar idea to chosen. God adopted out of love, verse 5, and in love, God's people are to be holy and blameless. All of that is still true. But I still need to make a determination in what love qualifies to kind of determine how, you know, I preach the remainder of this sermon. Like, I got to land on it so I know where to go faithfully. Here's what I think without getting into all the details, and I do believe the most likely answer from the Greek, in my opinion, is that in love qualifies the terms holy and blameless. If this is true, then God's people respond to God in love by living holy and blameless lives. But here's the deal. What motivates God's people to respond to him with this kind of love? Right? In 1 John, which Ryan read, in 1 John, 
I think it gives us an unmistakable picture of the love dynamic between God and those who follow God by faith. Here's 1 John 4, verses 7 to 10. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because... God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. Now, that's remarkable. The love of God came to earth in the form of, in the man of Jesus Christ. It was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. So in this passage, we do see the origin of love. We see why Christians are to respond to God with love because he first loved us. It is a joy to live a holy and blameless life out of love before God because he first loved us. So here's how I want to put the biblical love puzzle together. Several simple steps can help us understand this passage and the meaning of love in the Bible. First, I want to define biblical love. Like we got to, I already said earlier, like how you define the term matters. So we need to find a definition here. What's going on? The English word for love is all over the pages of your scripture, uh, but the Greek and the Hebrew uh, meanings for love are much more nuanced. You've heard the saying, the devil's in the details, which is an unhelpful cultural idiom. Well, understanding the love of God is in the biblical details. So I'll define what we see in the pages of Holy Scripture. So that's the first thing. Let's bring a definition. Number two, I want us to look at the nature of God's love. Why is love not only a virtue of God, but God is love? That's significant. That's a significant statement. To say God is love is quite an affirmation. And God, who is love, elects and adopts a people for himself. So let's look at the nature of love as it relates to God. Number three, I want us to feel the weight and joy of responding to God in love. Just as we read in Ephesians 1.4. Like, we want to respond to God well. Our response to God is motivated out of the very character of God. So what does love mean in the Bible? How does God's love and our love for God connect? What are the connecting points here? It's not a secret that there are several words in the Bible to describe love. I, and I'm going to concede this. I'm going to repeat what every minister for all time has said about love in the Bible. <laughs> I'm going to repeat that. But the nuances are not insignificant. Here are the words for love in the Bible. Uh, they are agape. I call it, I say agape or agape. Storge and philia. There's a fourth Greek word for love, but it's not used in the New Testament, interestingly enough. It's the word eros. Let me first explain eros because it's this type of love most people are, I think, are familiar with. Uh, to keep the sermon PG, I won't give much detail, but the Greek word for eros um, basically is, it means erotic in the English. Eros is probably most, the most familiar version of love in our culture. 
by capturing and highlighting this type of love, Hollywood has made money like hand over fist. Here's what I find interesting, especially since we're so accustomed to seeing this kind of love on display like all around us, right? The New Testament never, not once, not once, uses the Greek word eros to define love. Never. We can certainly see this kind of love on display in like the Old Testament book, The Song of Solomon. I think that's fair. But it is never used in the New Testament, though this word for love was still common and in use in the first century. For example, when we get to Ephesians 5, we will read, Husbands, love your wife. Another Greek word is used there to define how a husband is to love his wife. So here's a sneak peek of Ephesians 5. The love of a husband that he is supposed to have for his wife is not primary physical or emotional. The love a husband is to have for his wife is much deeper and actually more meaningful. It's a sacrificial love. The love of a husband does not mean, uh, it does not mean ensuring physical needs, but is laying down physical conditions for his wife's needs. Indeed, we see in the Bible a version of love that is much different than what you see at the movie theater or on your home theater. Very different. Eros set aside for a moment. Here are the three other biblical words for love. So we got this word storge, again, in the Greek. It's occasionally used in the New Testament, not a lot, just every now and then. It refers to love between family members or people with a common interest. So a quick example of this would be the love of a child for his mother or father. It's like a storge love. Again, not used often in the New Testament, but when it's used, there's this relational dynamic at work. The next and even more familiar use of love in the New Testament is philia. Philia refers to kind of a friendship love, a a type of love that is bound together by similar values or respect or perhaps a common interest in a cause. Here's an example. I love philia that we all as a church partner together in the gospel mission. Our partnership and love are connected to a more significant principle removed outside of oneself. That's a philia love. Uh, Let me just explain what philia love is not. (laughs) I was joking with someone earlier this week about the city of Philadelphia. (laughs) The name of the city means city of brotherly love. might know that. Kind of a cool name. I like the name. Except when the city fails to live up to its name. So, example, in 2018, my beloved Minnesota Vikings lost to the Philadelphia Eagles in the NFC Championship game. It was heartbreaking. Got killed. And then how did the city of Philadelphia respond? By rioting. I'm like, you won the game, guys. (laughs) What are you doing to your city? I'm like, that's not brotherly love. Now, old joking aside, Philia love is more like the relationship between David and Jonathan in the Old Testament. Like, David had Jonathan's back, Jonathan had David's back. They were the best of friends. They had a genuine love for one another. 
So philia love is meaningful. We express philia love in our relationships with one another. I think philia love is to be embraced and wholeheartedly endorsed. The final word for love that I want to mention, and it's this type of love I will highlight for the rest of this sermon, is agape or agave. You might be familiar with this term. And this word is the most profound of all the terms for love by far, far and away. Agave love is unconditional. Agave love serves another no matter the circumstances. In other words, offering this kind of love does not necessitate a response from the other person. This kind of love could be considered altruistic in that it focuses on the needs of others before the self. It's sacrificial. While agave love is not necessarily romantic, it does not preclude it. Now let me compare agape love or agave love with eros since it's these two type of loves that I think get most confused in our culture and in the church. In the classical period, so a long time ago, eros was frequently used from Homer, so 9th, 8th century BC onwards, with the idea of one person showing physical affection toward the other person. Whether the other person wanted that physical affection or not didn't matter. Desire is often the motive of showing this kind of affection. In contrast to eros, agave love makes a free choice toward whom it shows affection. Agave love is not motivated out of desire, at least not a physical desire. Eros is impulsive. Agave love selects and keeps the love of the person who's the object of love. Eros seeks satisfaction wherever it can. If I can satisfy my desire over there, I'm doing it. Agave love is free to select and is faithful in its affection toward a person. Eros is in bondage to impulse and seeks fulfillment of self, of self, and whoever the person might be. Like, don't tell me you don't see that in culture. Everything's turning in on the self. Ah, that's eros. So here's the bottom line. Agave love is unselfish. Eros love is deeply selfish. It's no wonder we have confused what it means for God to be love and for us to love God in return and for us to love others as well, right? When someone mentions the word love, like our mind jumps to romance. But what we see in the Bible is that when love is mentioned, it has nothing to do with romance. Agave love is more of a choice than a feeling. Agave love does not preclude feelings for certain, but it certainly is not the dominant feature. We've got to settle our hearts on this point because far too often, far too often, our feelings and emotions determine what we think, it determines what we think we should love. If I feel that, then I must love that. And if your feelings and emotions dominate, dominate your perception of love, then your ability to understand the love of God will be elusive and your response to God in return will be wholly inadequate. Perhaps understanding the love between the Father, God the Father, and God the Son will help us grasp 
agave love and its direct connection to the doctrines of election and adoption in which we read in Ephesians 1. Theologian and author Michael Reeves, who I pointed out earlier, said this, the Trinity can be presented as a fusty, I like that word, an irrelevant dogma. But the truth is that God is love because God is Trinity. God is defined by love, and love is what flows and unites each member of the Trinity, even before God ever created, Ephesians 1, 4. Before he even ruled the world, before anything else, this God was a father loving his son. And as the father was loving the son, the son was loving the father. The son does not love the father because he has to love him. That's not what's going on here. But he loves because that is, that is who the Son is. What we see between the love of the Father and the Son is really just the shape of their relationship. And like there are metaphysical ways to think about God being loved. But if you want to understand agave love, the agave love of God, then you need to begin to grasp two concepts that we see within the Trinity. The concepts are Submission and sacrifice. So you want to understand agave love, especially as it relates to the Trinity. We need to understand these concepts of submission and sacrifice. Submission and sacrifice are tough words for people to swallow, but they help us to define God's love along with our response to love God by being holy and blameless. In eternity past, in eternity past, the Son submitted to the Father out of love to redeem a people to himself out of love. Do you remember what I've been saying to you about God's covenant of redemption? Talked about the last two, three weeks. Well, the submission of the Son to the Father happened in eternity past because of love. Let me try to apply the love of the triune God to our everyday life. Uh, nobody likes the word submission. It's kind of a dirty word in our culture. People bristle at the word submission in part because abuse that can take place from someone who is dominant over another person trying to get someone to submit. And that kind of submission is wicked. It's not what we see with God. It's, it's void of love. Instead, the motive and mission of the Father and the Son are actually in lockstep. They're on the same page. They agreed out of love for the Son to prepare the way for redemption for God's chosen people. Uh, the loving submission of the son is not like an MMA fighter, the father taking down another MMA fighter, the son. That's not what's going on here. No, the son willingly submits to the father. You'll read the gospel of John in that kind of language, which is all over the pages of that particular gospel. The submission of the son then leads to the sacrifice of of the Son for the Father. The Son, Jesus Christ, was shared with the created world out of love, and the Son was on mission to demonstrate the power of love. There's not a more powerful image of love throughout the entire history of the world than the cross of Jesus Christ. There's not a more powerful picture or image during his earthly ministry, Jesus said this to his disciples, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. 
It's pretty powerful. Now, let me ask you this. Out of all the terms for love that I've explained, what word best fits the relationship between the father and son? What concept of love helps us to grasp the son's relationship to God's chosen people? God's agave love is undoubtedly just remarkable. I mean, just go back to Ephesians 5 for a moment, because a lot of what we see within a marriage context is a metaphor for, for the relationship between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. When you get to Ephesians 5, what do we see going on there? The husband is to sacrifice for his wife, and the wife is to lovingly submit to his husband. And what do we see with God? These same themes brought out. We're getting a picture of what love truly is. What we see in the Bible is that the eternal love between the Father and the Son overflows through his act of choosing and through his adoption. Consider what this verse means when you understand the magnitude of God's love for you. It's back to Ephesians 1.4. Even as he chose, go, go ahead and just, not say us, but cho- even as he chose you in him before the foundation of the world. That's staggering. God did not need to create so that he could share his love. Love has always existed perfectly with God, but he did create out of love. Generally speaking, all humanity experiences a sense of God's love. The rain falls on the just and the unjust, right? That, generally speaking, that is the case. But very specifically, the elect are recipients of a special kind of love from God. A way God shares his love is through the act of, of electing people to receive a special and salvific, think salvation love. And as I said last week, God chose you, God chose to love you, Christian, in eternity past. But we cannot stop at election. God elected you out of love. Basking in the glories of God's love through election leads you to the cross where love was unmistakably on display. The death of Christ at the cross is the ultimate display of submissive and sacrificial love. So all that was going on in eternity past between God the Father and God the Son took place at the cross out of love for you, Christian. We will see in more detail next week. But God not only chooses out of love, but he adopts out of love as well. Verse 5. When I think of God's love to adopt, I can't help but think of earthly adoptions and the love that exists between parents and children, right? Adoptive parents and adopted children. In In particular, the love an adopted child might feel toward his adoptive parents. Without adoptive parents, children remain, what, orphans, right? Without God, 
and him intervening in love, we remain orphans. Without God, we are helpless. Without God, we are children. Without a father, without God, we are wandering the streets, living in constant need. Without God, we're always looking for love in all the wrong places. But when God adopts a person, brings that child into his family, then all the spiritual blessings are unleashed from heaven on that son or daughter. God invites you he invites you in, and he, and he places you at the best seat of the table. God says, here, take and eat. My son, my daughter, take and eat. That bedroom over there, yes, that one over there, that's where you can rest. And all these other bedrooms that exist in this, in this massive house, there are other sons and daughters, other people that I've adopted, and they are your brothers and sisters as well. Our great God loves to adopt. And he has adopted you, Christian, out of love. What is our response to God for loving us before the, before the world was created? Before a star was put into place? What is our response? And now as we live in time and space, as we see God's love is realized in our life, what is our response well, there are many responses, potential responses, for certain. Our response, as we see in verse 4, is to live holy and blameless, right? I addressed this in part one of this mini, mini sermon series. But what is another reaction? We respond to God by loving him through worship. How does verse 3 begin in Ephesians 1? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, that could easily be restated as praise be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Praise him. If only a single drop of God's love were to overflow onto you, he would be more than worthy of your adoration and praise. Just one drop. But as it is, Christian, as it is, God's love for you is like standing in front of the Hoover Dam. I had to go look at the picture early, earlier this week when I was kind of thinking of this metaphor. The Hoover Dam is massive and behind it is a bunch of water. And then the dam is breached by water. Once that happens, there is no escaping God's love. You cannot outrun God's love. You cannot deny God's love. All you can do is just take it in. Take it all in. Once the dam breaks upon your life, the love of God gets into every crevice, crack, and pore of your body. Again, here's Michael Reeves. Christ loves the church first and foremost. His love is not a response given only when the church loves him. His love comes first. And we only love him because he, he first loved us. When the dam breaks, we're just like, I, my only response is to love you, oh God. In love, the dam broke, and the appropriate response indeed is to love God in return. And one of the many appropriate responses is to praise God for who he is and what he has done for you. 
Now I can imagine someone thinking, because I've thought this to myself, okay, Pastor Sean, I get it. God loves me. Cool. Quick question. How come there are times when I don't feel loved by God? There are times. You know, all, you don't get all the feels. So that's actually a fair question. When I think about my marriage with Sharice, I want to feel loved by her, and I want her to feel loved by me, right? God gave us emotions and feelings, so they are certainly not to be ignored. No way. When we feel loved by God, it's easier to love God in return. But here's the deal. God's agave love is not predicated upon you having all the feels. And if we stop to think about it, we should be thankful God's love is not about making you feel good. It's not. God's love is about redeeming you from sin and giving you an eternal hope centered upon the love of Christ. You know, I'm a guy who uh, feels a lot, <laughs> but my feelings and emotions are like a Jackson Pollock painting. Good luck trying to figure it out. And I thank God that his love for me isn't about making me feel good, although God's love certainly can make you feel good. But God's love is about Christ and him crucified. When our Lord was crucified, he was not concerned with how you should feel or how you would feel. But he was concerned with saving you from your sin. Love is a wondrous virtue that defines God and his interaction with creation, his creation. Love is what unites God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And love is the motive in which God chooses, redeems, and adopts his people. I'll end by referencing what I said at the beginning of this message. John Lennon Paul McCartney, like, I'm a son of a hippie. I, I heard this song on repeat for 20 years. All you need is love. That's what they said. Are they, are they, are they accurate? Are, is what they're saying true? All you need is love. Well, yes. They were correct. But they and many others have found love in all the wrong places. The only kind of love that regenerates the broken heart is God's covenantal love. The only kind of love that satisfies the soul is God's redeeming love. The only love that gives hope is God's eternal love. The only love that you need is God's submissive and sacrificial love, a love that was on full display at the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. So, every word, I, 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 about 4,000 words in this manuscript. So, every word I've used in this sermon leads me to say these three words to you, Christian. God loves you. Let's pray.
You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org.